0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Well, as we come now to study God's Word, uh, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we ask as we come now to study the Bible that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate our hearts to see the glory of Christ and worship him in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, my friends, we come now to a new section In the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying together and have been over the last few weeks. Uh, But before we go any further, let me uh, briefly recap so we can put the whole thing in the appropriate framework. Jesus, you may remember, has been telling us what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. In particular, he has described how entrance into the kingdom of heaven is a process, a process of emptying ourselves of our own. Uh, righteousness in order to be filled with the righteousness of God. So it's not about uh, our own spiritual excellence, it's about the spiritual excellence of God be filled with His righteousness. Perhaps you remember the first blessing that uh, Jesus gave, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? It means that receiving the kingdom of heaven is not about being spiritually excellent in our own selves. It begins with recognizing our spiritual poverty. And then we may be filled with God's uh, love and blessing. Well, having established that initial principle, Jesus then went on to describe, didn't He, what what these people are like who have entered the kingdom of heaven. Who, who are these people? What are they like? And he, he used two metaphors, two pictures. They are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. We described those two metaphors like this. We said that uh, that means that they are the global spiritual illuminators, light of the world, and the global moral preservatives, salt of the earth. Now then, I immediately want you to understand just how important it is what we are doing this morning. Here we are together, and we, as God's people, are God's means for changing the world. That's it. That's all we're doing. See, God has a plan to change the world, and it centers on Jesus, and we are His people so you see poverty, you see darkness, you see injustice. Well, God has a people whose mission it is to bring the blessing of God, the beatitude blessing of God to the furthest corners of the globe, and that people is the church. Well, now having taught in this way, the natural question is how can we uh, be like this? What sort of lifestyle must we adopt in order to have this kind of uh, influence? And so then in the most recent section that we have just concluded, Jesus teaches that in order for these people to be like this, to be people of global gospel influence, we are to have a righteousness even greater than the Pharisees. Now, my friends, we must remember that uh, when we speak like this that the Pharisees uh, were then famous for their righteousness. Today we think of Pharisees as religious hypocrites. But in those days, the Pharisees were considered to be the religious elite. And so for Jesus to say that our righteousness is to be greater than even the Pharisees, well, that's setting a very high standard. And He explains what he means by that standard in four aspects of human interaction. Instead of merely avoiding murder, we are to avoid hate. Instead of merely avoiding adultery... We are to avoid lust. Instead of merely avoiding uh, white lies, we are to speak the truth plainly and simply, straightforwardly. Instead of acting in revenge against our enemies by various means of subterfuge and all the rest, we are to love our enemies. And pray for those who persecute us. And by the way, that means, doesn't it, that to pray for someone is not conditional on our approval of their behavior or their faith system. We can pray and should pray even for those who persecute Christ and his people. Now, of course, this standard then is a very high one. (laughs) And Jesus underlines that by concluding, as we saw last week, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we saw last week, didn't we, that this call to be perfect is a, a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it calls us to aim to be more and more like God and aiming for perfection. But On the other hand, it calls us to acknowledge our sinfulness and trust in Christ for His uh, sinless righteousness, for His perfection. And once again, this reminds us that really the Sermon on the Mount is not about us. It's about Jesus. And so when we finish this study of the Sermon on the Mount in the next few weeks or months or years, our response should be the same as the response of those who first heard it. That is, they said, who is this? He teaches, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one who has authority. Who is this person? Jesus. That's the aim of the Sermon on the Mount, to cause us to wonder at the person of Jesus. And now we come to a new section, and Jesus immediately addresses a very real danger. Let me illustrate it for you in two ways. First, I uh, remember a conversation with a person who had worked for some time on the senior staff of one of the great global relief and development organizations. Uh, This man was telling me stories about the president of the organization, stories which I believe, uh, to have been reliable, not gossip, and which are now no longer actionable because the senior leadership has changed, but which nonetheless illustrate what is uh, here Jesus is talking about is a real danger. The president of this organization, the organization whose mission was to alleviate the pain of the poor and provide development for the poor all around the world, the president, I was told, always would stay in the very best hotel. And, in fact, he drove a very expensive car, a car, in fact, that was chauffeur-driven and had a particular personalized number plate that indicated his elite status. My friend said the staff at the organization used to joke that the personalized number plate should instead have read, poverty has been good to me. Of course the point they were making was that for all this organization's apparent and in many cases real attention to helping the poor, the person at the top, well he appeared to be making a lot of money out of that mission. And there was something deeply disturbing about that story I found. My other illustration comes from a lot further back. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer wrote uh, The Canterbury Tales. It's a a collection of stories about people making a pilgrimage to Canterbury, the sort of a, one of the great uh, centers of religion and uh, spirituality in the British Isles, uh, the sort of mecca of that place in some ways, at least in those days. And uh, that story, the Canterbury Tales, is a medieval masterpiece of chicanery. There is the wife of Bath, who comely she and gat-toothed she were, displays her apparent faithfulness and actual debauchery. And then there are also several religious types, I'm afraid. One of them is a genuine moral hero, the poor parson. The others are more hypocritical. And as they wind their way on pilgrimage to Canterbury, these folk, all on a seemingly pious journey, tell story after story of bawdry license, and sexual innuendo. And I'm afraid the church professionals are in some ways the worst The friar, he uses his storytelling opportunity to lambast his clerical rival, the Summoner. Whereupon the Summoner retorts that when he visited hell he could find no friars there till he looked rather close to Satan's rear end. Chaucer lived in the mid-14th century, yet his themes of religious hypocrisy are scarcely likely to go out of fashion. And nor are Jesus's. See, Jesus has just finished declaring that his followers are to be perfect. <laughs> be perfect, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a high moral standard, a very one very high moral standard. If ever there was what? And we've seen that it included the heart as well as the deeds, the attitude as well as the actions, the intention as well as the effect. And immediately, though, Jesus continues in this next section, beginning with a necessary b- warning Beware. Be perfect, yes, but be careful. You see, from verses 1 to 18, he will address the three universal practices of all religions, almsgiving, uh, giving money to the poor or charitable donations, uh, praying, and fasting. Every religion has rules and principles with relation to these three distinct activities. And Christianity is no different in that it expects those of us who call ourselves Christians to be generous, to give money towards the work of God, to pray, and to fast. Yet, unlike any other religion, those who follow Jesus are called to perform these religious duties in quite unique ways. Now, uh, we will look this morning particularly at giving uh, from verses 2 to 4 of chapter 6. But I want you to notice three key themes that span each of these three standard religious practices according to the teaching of Jesus. And which we uh, must really keep in mind if we are to give, pray, and fast as Jesus uh, wants us to do, it's all showing us the the real heart of true religion. Well, here are the three key themes that Jesus describes as a uh, key uh, to this uh, true following of uh, God. One, the fatherhood of God. Jesus makes it clear that throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, about that, but particularly in this section, that his followers have a unique relationship to God. For them, God is not merely the great almighty being of deus philosophy. God is not merely the blind force of fates of pagan religions. God is not the angry distant God that sometimes uh, we depict him as in our arts. No, for a Christian, and only for a Christian, Someone who has entered the kingdom of heaven by faith in Jesus, God is now our Father. For all people, God is the Creator. He made everyone, and everyone is made in His image. But only for those who have entered the kingdom of heaven and through faith in Jesus are now declared to be sons of God, only those who are able to call God Father. Note, will you, in your Bibles, if you'll look down with me, how many times Father is used in this section. Verse 1. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven, verse 4, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, verse 6, pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, verse 9, our Father in heaven. that famous prayer of Jesus needs to be contextualized in this section this way. Verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, if we are to have a right practice of our religious duties, giving, praying, fasting, then we must have a right theology of God. In particular, we must view Him as our Father in heaven. If our giving, our praying, and our fasting is insufficiently passionate, is insufficiently devoted, is play-acting rather than authentic, then it will be traced in part to an inadequate view of God. See, if we view God as uncaring we are likely to give, pray, or fast in authenticity. The second major theme that connects each of these religious devotions when rightly practiced is not only having a right view of the fatherhood of God, but also having a right view of rewards. Again, it's remarkable how many times Jesus speaks about reward in this section. Verse 1, then you will have no Reward from your Father, verse 4. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, verse 5. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward, verse 16. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, verse 18. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, here's how this works. If we think that God will not reward us for our prayers, fasting and giving, then we will pray, fast and give, perhaps but in a way that seeks rewards from other people, from other humans. We have to have a right view of rewards, which believes that God our Father will reward us for praying, fasting, and giving. Otherwise, when we pray, fast, and give, as much as we may look like we're praying to God, really we'll be praying to impress people. Now, Jesus here does not tell us what the reward is that God our Father will give us. To know that, we have to have a wider sense of Scripture's teaching on the matter. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now, we know from early in the sermon, the Beatitude, our reward is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, our reward is God Himself. We will see God, and in Him, everything that is or will be is our reward. Perhaps you are struggling to get out of bed early in the morning to pray. Perhaps uh, you are struggling to give financially, as you know that you should consider the rewards. I do not mean that in a crass, materialistic sense. I mean it as Jesus meant it, something far better, far more. In fact, everything, world, life, death, present, future. C.S. Lewis has a section which helpfully explains this in his The Weight of Glory. He writes, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring marriage. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. The reward is God. Well, the last major theme that runs through the section that explains how to fulfill our religious duties of prayer, fasting, and giving without hypocrisy. It's not only a right view of God as Father, not only a right view of rewards, but also a commitment to act in secret. Now, once more, it is remarkable how many times Jesus emphasizes this principle in this A particular section of his Sermon on the Mount. So verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is, here's how this works. Because God is our Father, because He longs to reward us, with those two principles in mind, we will act even in secret to please Him. We will not need to impress other people ultimately. We will seek to please God even when no one else is watching because God sees He is our Father and He will reward us. Now, there is, of course, an important balance here for each of uh, these practices. A prayer, fasting, and giving Are obviously uh, have aspects of them that must be public. Jesus himself prayed in public. The early church prayed in public. Jesus is not saying, do not do your acts of devotion in public at all. He is saying that your acts of devotion in public are to be merely the tip of the iceberg of your acts of devotion in private. So if I find myself praying far more enthusiastically, far more impressively, far more devotedly when I pray in front of other people than I do when I pray on my own, then I'm slipping towards hypocrisy. Now, prayer by its very nature is intended to be vertical, not horizontal. (laughs) And so then public prayer, which necessarily includes a horizontal aspect for we are praying together, is the fruit of private prayer and therefore is still to be orientated vertically to please the Father in heaven. Now, what Jesus is teaching here in this section is the secret place of true religious devotion. If I am more enthusiastic for prayer in public than in private, if my prayers are longer and more full, more generous or more complete, if I pray more in public than in private, I may be sure I'm a hypocrite. If I give for show to have my name recorded on a list of our very generous donors in perpetuity. If I give to pat myself on the back and feel good about myself, then I may be sure I am a hypocrite. If I fast to impress people. If I advertise my fasting by, as they did, spreading ashes on my head or looking somber. Rather than just being normal and going about my business, putting oil, that is gel, in my hair or deodorant under my arms, uh, washing my face, that is having a shower, not not faking happiness, but just being normal. But if I advertise it, am I becoming a hypocrite? Now what can we do about this need for authenticity in our religious devotions to God? Or well, Jesus is teaching an antidote. To all of this, and the antidote is called secrecy. So it goes back to our most fundamental view of God. If I really believe that God is real, that God is good. And that God rewards those who seek Him and that His reward must be by the very nature of things far greater than any other reward I could get from anyone else, any other institution or from fame or fortune. If I believe this, then I will not be tempted to do things to impress other people and get a reward from them if I believe that God sees everything and knows my heart, not as some divine snooper, but as the ever-present Father, then I will not be tempted to think that the secret prayers of my tears or the desires of my heart will be lost if not advertised. (laughs) Jesus is saying that the principle that should govern all of our piety, all of our religious activity, is a desire to impress God. And the only way to ensure that that is our desire and that it is true is not, as Jesus said, to do righteousness before men, but before God. Now once, uh, my friends, we see that overarching context with those Three key themes. We can rapidly apply what Jesus is teaching here about giving with reward. Verses 2 to 4, let me read uh, them for us one more time. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, do you see? Alms, as the old translation is, charity, giving to the needy, is to be done. Of course, it is not to be done for show. Charity is not show business. Well, there are lots of applications of this, aren't there? How far removed uh, we quickly come from Jesus' standard. People have come up with various suggestions of the original context for some of the specifics here. Did they really announce their giving with trumpets? It is amazing enough possible that in one way or another they did. Some think the trumpets were trumpet like receptacles for the charitable donations, uh, which made a satisfying and widely heard clang when you put your money in. Some think the trumpets were used to summon givers to the temple when there was an especial need, like letters of fundraising. And your response time and direction of your running indicated the good that you were intending to do to everyone else. Others think that Jesus is being metaphorical. Uh, They are, as we would say, tooting their own horn. Look at me. Did you know, Matthias, how much I gave last month? Yet it's even more subtle than that, I'm afraid. The sin in Piety and religious devotion. Jesus says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is against records of accounting. He is saying, Don't congratulate yourself. It may be fanciful, but uh, I've often had in my mind that Jesus was talking of applause. The right hand was the hand that would most often give. The left should not know. That is, well done right hand. What a good job. Clap, clap. You see? And patting yourself on the back, we would say. And of course, uh, all our tendency to list donations to building projects is here brought into question, Is isn't it? A gold member donation? Or is it a trumpet donation. Let me make it even more applicable. I once came across someone who wrote a rather good, fairly expansive commentary on these words, and he made sure it was known to many people that uh, all money he received from that book will be given away to the poor. Impressive. I was impressed. He received his reward. Well, let me apply it to the celebrity religion of our day. The person who appears to give most is not always the person who actually gives most. The widow with her mite is rarely the same person who runs at the sound of the trumpet to ostentatiously give. It's not what we give that counts, but what we keep. And even that is half baked. It's what we do before God that counts. I'm afraid I am inherently and ashamedly suspicious of stadiums filled with expensive celebrity gimmicks spouting ideas about the poor. Our oh, giving is not to be celebrity, it is to be secret. Now, my friends, that does not mean that we cannot be held to account for our lack of Generosity cannot misinterpret Jesus' words that way to get out of our responsibilities. And it does not mean that we cannot tell stories about how uh, kind people have been generous to us. Such stories are not about us, they're about them. It certainly does not mean that we are to avoid calls to generosity. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the uh, Bishop, the Anglican Bishop of uh, Liverpool, He uh, said that Jesus' words here point out the selfish, stinginess of many. Well, of course, that is true. Or as Jonathan Edwards said, uh, God's people at such a time as this ought especially to abound in deeds of charity and almsgiving. So far as I can judge by Scripture, there is no external duty whatsoever by which persons will be so much in the way, not only of receiving temporal benefits, but also spiritual blessings, the influence of God's Holy Spirit in the heart, in divine discoveries, and spiritual consolations as giving. Or as uh, Anne Frank put it, no one has ever become poor by giving. Yes, but uh, this also points out the heart of true Authentic Christianity, the fatherhood of God, a right understanding of rewards, and therefore a secret place of devotion to God, giving with reward, and the reward being the giver, God himself. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for uh, the words uh, that Jesus spoke here. And we pray uh, to you as our Father, conscious of the great and astonishing truth that in Jesus we can call you Father that though we are poor in spirit, we, we have the kingdom of heaven and you are our Father in heaven. It is not our righteousness, it is yours. And Father, we uh, long to be the uh, light of the world, the sword of the earth, that uh, these words describe uh, your people as, as being. And so we long to... Uh, Be perfect as, Father, you are perfect. Father, also we uh, wish to do that with authenticity. And so we pray uh, that uh, our public acts of devotion will be the tip of the iceberg of our private, secret devotion to you. Father, would you... um, Raise up a people here and now who seek your face. Do not listen to the lie that says that seeking God has no benefit, but instead hear those ancient words, seek me and live. And Father, we thank you that uh, you are a loving Father who rewards such a grace-given, spirit-filled, Jesus-inspired, giving, praying, fasting. And so we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.